Hebrews chapter 13, um, starting in verse 18. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 18. uh, Our writer writes, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter that took 10 months to go through. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greeting. Grace be with you all. So to this point, we, we've, we've discovered a whole lot, right? The whole book is, is uh, this, this exploration, this truth that, that Jesus is better. And uh, specifically, these guys were struggling with um, persecution and problems, and they were feeling uh, pressure to return back to Judaism. And, uh, and so the author writes them, say, no, stand firm in your faith. Jesus is better than that stuff. I want you to hang in there, right? And, and so we learned so many lessons as we walk through the text. We, at this point, we've learned that Jesus is a better picture of God. We've got a lot of pictures in the world. A lot of people think a lot of things about God. But if you want to know the heart of God, if you want to see what God looks like, you look to Jesus. He's a better picture. We talked about the fact that he's a better prophet. And we looked at all the the religions in the world and all the prophets of those religions. We see that Jesus stands head and shoulders above them all. said he's a better creator. He's a better sacrifice. That he's better than the angels. He's he's a, a better anchor as we tend to drift away. He's a better argument. He's a better restorer. He's a better pioneer. He goes before us. We talked about the fact that Jesus is a better liberator as he sets us free from the power of sin and death, that he is better than Moses, that he um, brings us better rest, that he is a better word. He's a better high priest. I love that lesson when we discover that Jesus is a better meal and that those that eat with Jesus always have leftovers. We talked about the fact that Jesus is better than the basic tenets of faith and that we should move on and, and, and know him deeply, that Jesus was better soil. We talked about the fact that he's a better promise, he's a better priesthood, he's our better hope, he's a better servant, he's better than a symbol, he's the better way, he's our better payment, he brings us better confidence, he's better for us, he is our better example, he's way better at discipline, he's a better mountain, he's our better help, and of course last week he's our better leader. Now having established all that, our author ties everything up, and he leaves us one last lesson, one last final powerful reminder for these people that are enduring these problems and this persecution. He gives them one powerful reminder, and here it is. Ready? Jesus is better for us. He makes us better. Jesus makes us better, right? So so the author boast about Christ. He talks about every office that he holds. He talks about how good he is. And then he says, and oh, by the way, just so you know, he makes you better too. He makes you better too. And, and I want you to read um, verse 20 and 21 with me again. It says, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead... Our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what's pleasing to him. I I love that title. Did you catch it? 
that great shepherd. It says Jesus, that great shepherd. Now, throughout the Gospels, Jesus identifies his character and his identity to the disciples on a regular basis, doesn't he? I mean, we find it all over, especially in the book of John. In the book of John, um, we find the seven I am statements, right? Where, where Jesus, seven occasions, says plainly to his disciples, I am the bread of life, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And in John ten eleven, he, he identifies himself this way. He says, I am the, the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. That's who I am, okay? And then he explains what he means by that. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And of course, guys, that's what Jesus did for us, right? Jesus died for us. He is the good shepherd. But, but our text reminds us that he's not just the good shepherd. He's also the great shepherd. You see, the good shepherd dies for his sheep. The great shepherd lives for his sheep. And, and so Hebrews 13 comes to remind us that Jesus did not stay dead, but he conquered death, he rose from the grave, and he now lives for his sheep. He lives for us. And what does he live to do? He lives to make us like him. He lives to make us better. Jesus didn't stay dead because he desires for us to be made into his image. He desires that we have his life, real, everlasting, true, genuine life. I just want you to think about that with me. That's a big deal. Because the sin payment was made, right? The moment that Jesus died, the sin payment was made. We were forgiven at that point. Now, it could have stopped there, but that wasn't the point. That wasn't the mission. The mission wasn't just forgiveness. The, the point was actually perfection, wasn't it? See, Jesus didn't just die. He also conquered death. So he paid the sin payment. He provided forgiveness. But then he went so much further. And he conquered death. He rose again that we might have life. That he might work in us to make us better. To make us perfect. And we'll get into that word in a second and what that means. So Jesus conquered death that we might have life and that we might live like him. Perfection was the point. It's a big deal. And that's what we need to close with as we wrap up Hebrews 13 today. What, what this perfection, what this new life that, that Christ affords us looks like. And that's what we're going to do. And so again, um, just 20 and 21, I'm at the tail end of 20. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Okay, so, so this is a work of God in us. What is that work? What is that work? Just according to our text, it's an equipping work. That he may equip you. So this is a work of God in you. It's not something that you do. It's not something that you produce, but rather it's something that Jesus produces in you. He equips you. Now, that word there in Greek, equip, is a huge one, right? I mean, literally, you can go look it up later. Go to Blue Letter Bible, something like that. Look it up. Look up the Greek. Mean It means all this stuff, right? It means to uh, prepare. Equip means to prepare. It means to restore. It means to perfectly join together. It means to mend. Um, it, it can mean to complete. It can mean and refer to framing a, a building. It can mean to strengthen. It can mean to um, repair what has been broken. And it can mean to make one what he ought to be. And when a word is that big, and you have an inquiring mind as you read Scripture, 
and you find out that Jesus conquered death in order to do this for you, the question that then I ask is, well, what is this exactly? Because this is a big word. Like, like, like it's used 13 times in the New Testament. It's a big word. It's got all these meanings. So why did Jesus die? What did he die to do in my life and in your life? And when we begin to study the other occurrences of this word, we begin to formulate a little bit of a picture, and that's what we're going to do this morning. I'll just share three occurrences of this word throughout the New Testament and the implications that that has for our life, here's the first thing I want you to see, okay? Jesus makes us better by mending our lives and our witness so that we can be fishers of men. Jesus makes us better by mending our lives and our witness so that we can be fishers of men. So the first group of, of, of people, remember we always want to understand what the text says as the people that had originally heard it would understand it. So this is a Greek word here, equip in our text in Hebrews 13. How would the, the audience have received that word? Well, the first group that would have understand this word would have been fishers or anyone that lived near uh, the region near a sea. Anybody that had to do with fishing would have understood this word and interpreted this word to mean mend, right? Because it referred to um, a a fisherman that that was mending their nets. You see, in those days, uh, they they fished not like us, not with reel and rod, but they fished with nets. And and, and if you're fishing with nets, um, and that is the only way that you catch fish, is the use of nets, what do you have to take really good care of? Your Nets, right? Because if there is a hole in your net, you are not going to catch many fish. That's kind of how that works. And so on a constant basis, fishermen were constantly seen um, mending and fixing their nets. In fact, this is what John and James, uh, the son of Zebedee, were doing when Jesus encountered them and called them to follow him, right? And, and this, we find this in the book of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew four twenty one 21 um, says, going on from there, now he's already talked to Peter and Andrew, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. Now that word preparing there, that's our word. They were there equipping their nets. They, they were there doing what? Not preparing, but repairing. They, they were there literally tying together every hole in the net so that they might catch fish. That's what they were doing. They were mending their nets. And if you've never seen what this looks like, anybody ever watch uh, Deadliest Catch? This is what they do with the crab pots, right? They kind of have like a piece of bone or something or soapstone and, and you've got, and, and you've got, you know, uh, rope attached to it and you're, you're just weaving it and tying it and, and you're mending the nets. And so, uh, this was a huge part of being a fisherman is that you had to mend your nets. Of course, Jesus then would say to them, come and follow me. And guys, this is, is really the truth of the gospel, right? God has saved us for a purpose. He, he's called us for a purpose. He didn't just say, come and follow me. He said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, see, you were called in Christ for a reason. And that reason is that as you go, this is Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that as you go about life, you would make disciples for Jesus. Now, that sounds difficult and hard, but it just means that as you go about life and you run into people, that your life has a positive influence on them and that you speak words. We actually have to talk. We can't just live in front of them. That we would speak words referencing how our lives have radically changed. And those words would sound something along the lines of what these early guides did would, would be things like, hey, we found the Messiah. 
Or, or I found the Savior. Or, I'm a follower of Jesus. Somebody comes to us and they say, why is your life so different? How come you don't worry and, and freak out about the, the economy in Greece and what's going to happen with, with this and what's going to happen with that and the next person? And you say, because I'm a follower of Jesus and he's shored up those things in my life. He's mended my net, right? And, and, and so that freaks a lot of people out when I tell them they're supposed to go and make disciples. They're like, but pastor, no, no, no. That's just for, that's for pastors, that verse. Right? They're to go and make disciples. No, that's actually not it. It's actually for all Christians. Uh, and, and people say, well, how do I do that? Well, here's how you do it. It's Acts 1-8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you receive power to do this. You receive power. This is not your work. This is God working in you. And, and if you submit to God, and if you take your life to Him, He will take your life, and He will repair all of those broken places and here's the deal. This is what I found with Christians. And, and, and I love Christians. I love my Christian community. I love my church. Here's what I find. Most believers I've found are very frustrated in their Christian life because they don't see a lot of fruit. They, they don't see a lot of fish in the net. So, so it kind of begs this one question, doesn't it? Is there any part of my life that needs mending? Is there any part of your net that has a gaping hole? Right? Is there any part of your personality? Is there anything that you've just decided, no, that, that area is off limits for God? Is there any gaping net in your or gaping hole in your net? Because if if there is, that's why you're ineffective and you're unproductive, right? And so so just as we think through that, maybe there is a reason that we don't see the productivity we want to. Jesus makes us better by mending our lives and our witness that we can um, be fishers of men. Number two, I want you to see uh, that Jesus makes us better by setting broken things in our lives right so that we can walk in his ways. Jesus makes us better by setting broken things in our lives right so that we can walk in his ways. Second um, group of people that would have understood this word, equip, uh, in Hebrews 13 and uh, in, in, in verse 21, they would have understood it and, and they would have translated it this way. It's, it's a group, uh, anybody involving the medical field or anybody that had received this kind of medical treatment because the word uh, here um, used for equip can also refer to setting a bone in place, right? To setting a bone in place. Setting a broken bone. It involves the imagery of perfectly realigning and joining together something that's been fractured. Paul uses this word in, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, Paul is, is writing a church, and, and the church has great division within it. And Paul's addressing some of the things that have caused divisions in, in the church. And this is what he says, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. That phrase there, perfectly united, is our word. That you be equipped, that, that you be set right, that your fractures and your divisions would be set perfectly right. It, it's a physician's term. And, and friends, what I want you to see is that this is God's will for us as well, that in the church there be no divisions or fractures, but that we would submit to Jesus and allow him to set all of the things that divide us right so that we could be a witness to the world. Now, why does Paul write those words to the church in Corinth? 
He writes them because he loves them and because they're ruining their witness. Do you know that? Ever seen a church split? Ever been a part of that? How long does it take that church to get that, their, their name back in that community? It's a long time. We're still working at it, aren't we? <laughs> it's difficult. When, when, when there are divisions in a church body, a church that is the bride of Christ, that is the representative of Jesus, and, and there are divisions in that place, the place that is supposed to be a, an image of Jesus, and there's problems there. Do you know what people say? i got my own problems. I don't need those. Right? And so Paul desperately wants to address what's fractured in the church, and he says, listen, we've got to fix this. And here's how we do it. God is going to equip. He's going to set it right. You need to submit to him and you need to let the great physician set right the fractures among you. And how do you do that? Why do you do that? So that you can walk in love. It's a point. What was Jesus about, guys? We're going to start talking about this next week, by the way. It's not real difficult. We've just made it really difficult. We've made it so churchy. You know what Jesus was about? Loving God and loving people. That's it. So, so what are we about? So he says, well, we're, we're Baptists. Well, what are Baptists about? Last I checked, they're known for a lot of things they don't like. What do we like? What do we love? God and people. What if we were known for those things again? What if we recaptured the identity of, of the early followers of Jesus? What would that look like? Right? And so Paul writes to me, he says, we've got to get rid of the fractures. And I just, I need to tell you, this is what Jesus does for us. And I want to give you a visual illustration, okay? Because there are all kinds of issues that separate us, right? I remember when I first got saved, um, I got in a college group because I was in college, right? And I'd never been in church before. And I get in a college group and man, I am on fire. Like, I'm like, God can do anything because he can save a wretch like me and I need to go tell everybody that God can take their messed up past and he can totally restore it. Like, that's the message I need to go speak about. And so I'm in a college group and this is what they're saying. They're like, well, um, we'd like to spend our time instead arguing about uh, the five points of Calvinism. And, and they did, and they just sat there and argued and debated about, well, how much does God really know, and what does it mean that he predestined, and, and, and uh, you know, how great of a sinner am I? And they just argued and argued. I'm like, there are lost and dying people, of which I was one of them. You are walking past them, arguing about stuff that doesn't matter. You should repent. And they looked at me like I was crazy. But we were so divisive. Got married and I got a young marriage class and we we're going to study the book of Revelation. You know what Revelation is? The biggest argument in the Bible. Like, that's it. Let's read the book of Revelation so we can all disagree about when Jesus is coming back. We can all form our own opinions about how that's going to happen and when it's going to happen. We can all get off track and forget the Great Commission, which says, by the way, go and make disciples. And then you read on and Jesus says, you're not going to know the time or the hour. And so the Christians keep guessing the time or the hour. And I'm like, shut up! I want him to come back! Every time you guess it, you're postponing it! Stop it! If we could instead just tell people that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the God-man that came and stepped into humanity to suffer the consequences of our sin, he died in our place, conquered death, rose again, and now lives to make us like him, we're good. So let's do that. 
And so here's what Jesus does. This is beautiful. The great physician, this is how he takes fractured people with differing opinions about politics and gun control and immigration. You know what he does? You know what he should do? You know what we should do? He takes all those things and, hey, I've got a lost and found bin. You ready? This is where it goes. The foot of the cross. Just lay it right here. Just come and you lay every opinion that you have about every non-central issue in life and you lay it right here at the foot of this cross so that when you look back to it trying to pick up your own opinion, instead you see hovering above it the greatest love that there has ever been or ever will be and suddenly that stuff doesn't, doesn't compare anymore, does it? And so we see Jesus crucified on our behalf and he's so much better than anything that would divide us. And all those fractures are set right and we become the bride of Christ again that we're meant to be. And we honor Jesus and the world sees that we are his disciples because of our love for one another. And I would just say to you, church, that doesn't sound that hard. Doesn't sound that hard. This is what Jesus wants to do for us, right? He wants to mend our life He wants to set right our fractured relationships. Finally, I would say this to you. Number three, I want you to see that Jesus makes us better by preparing us for the battles of life so that we can stand firm. So that we can stand firm. One of the great tragedies of the church today is that people don't understand they're in a battle. Whole bunch of Christians think they're just supposed to live in blessing. Blessingville, right? It's like it's some kind of farmtopia game on Facebook or something. Like that's where we're all supposed to live. And as long as I do this and I put in these coins, it's supposed to spit out blessing. Everything's supposed to be awesome and wonderful. Well, that would be cool if we didn't have a very real enemy named Satan that hates us, that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Okay? And, And he is real. Now, here's the deal. He is real, but he is unseen. But when you study the Bible, this is what it says about Satan and demons. Ready? They are fallen angels. Go read the Old Testament and read about what angels can do. They can wipe out entire towns, one angel. So really, really powerful creatures are fighting against you, and you cannot and you do not see them. Now the cool thing is there are also angels fighting for you, and you cannot see them either. Now, if I'm freaking you out a little bit, good, hallelujah, wake up to the gospel and the story of Jesus in real life, okay? You are never walking around on clouds. There is always battle going on on every side of you. And this is one of the things that Jesus does on your behalf, right, is that the angels are commanded, they are fighting for you, but there is spiritual battle, And it's just the absolute truth. And I love uh, Ephesians 6 talks about this. Ephesians 6.12. I'm going to share with you the New Living Translation because I like how it phrases it. It says, For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities, get this, of the unseen world. That's life. Welcome. This is what we're doing. You say, my marriage is struggling. Do you know why? Bam. There it is. Your marriage is struggling because there's real enemies that you can't see that hate you and want to tear that marriage covenant apart. Just look at America today, right? 
And so there is a very real unseen enemy that hates your family, that wants to destroy you. He wants to drive a wedge between you and your children. He wants to separate you. He wants to separate you and your spouse. He hates you, wants to destroy you. Therefore, he can win and he can ruin your witness because this is all about the fact that he hates God and he doesn't want us to go and make disciples. He thinks he can win. He's already lost. We know that. But, but there's a battle. Ephesians 2 talks about it. says the ruler of the unseen world. Now here's the deal. I don't know about you, but I start hearing all that and I get a little tense. Especially like if, I, if you were alone and you had to like face that on your own, anybody else be freaked out just a little bit? I mean, come on, let's be honest. We get freaked out over weird stuff like clowns, right? I mean, like, Unseen angels that have the power to wipe out entire cities. Yeah, I'm shaking a little bit. But here's the great news. We have Jesus. We have Jesus. We are not alone. We're not fighting the battle alone. And so this is one of the things that Jesus does for us. This is one of his great ministries to us. That he trains us and he prepares us for battle. And he protects us. And he never leaves us. And he never forsakes us. And we're never alone. We are always with him. And he wins. And he wins. He wins. He's the good shepherd, the great shepherd that equips us with everything good for doing his will in this battle called life. All right. So those are the truths. Now, what do we do with them? What do we do? The last lesson in Hebrews, what do we do with them? I think, I think it's one of the best lessons uh, in the whole book. Here's the challenge. Ready? Three things. Number one, regularly ask God to inspect your life. Okay? Regularly ask God to inspect your life, to, to check your uh, nets, if you will. David would, would say it this way, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Uh, he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in, in the way everlasting. And friends, I'm here to tell you, your life is your net. It's your life. It's your life. I was reading a book about pastoring, and uh, I got to a little uh, subsection that I really um, kicked me in the teeth a little bit. I'll share it with you, but this was basically it. Ready? It just said this. It's a simple pastor. Your life is your message. Ouch. Your, your life is, is your message. That, that is. You can stand up and you can have great theology and you can practice and have good delivery. You can make eye contact with every soul, but your life is the message. And if your life doesn't back up what you're proclaiming, then your ministry is pointless. Your life is your message. Guard your life. That's not just good, new, good uh, advice for pastors. That's good advice for Christians. Your life is your message. Your life is, is, is your message. So, so what do we do? Pray that prayer. Ask God to constantly inspect your life, right? Your, your life is your net. That is your message. And so we've got to go to God on a regular basis and say, God, would you, would you look at my life? What, what is here that's not of you? What is here that I need to let go of or I need to lay down? What, what gaping holes in my life do you need to mend so that I can be effective and productive, so that I can be a fisher of men, so that I can catch fish? Not just let them swim through. Right? 
It's a big deal. It's a big deal. May we go before God and, and ask, Lord, do I care about money or possessions too much? Lord, Lord, um, is my, my temper out of, out of balance? Father, am I, am I passionate about the right things? God, God am, am, I, am I focused on, on the gospel and, and the ministry of reconciliation that is central? Or am I caught up in all the nonsensical stuff that doesn't matter? Lord, mend me. Take these gaping holes and, and tie them up for your glory. That I might be productive for your kingdom and for your namesake, right? Your life, your life is your message. Ask God to examine it. Number two. <clears throat> Ask God to fix any fractured relationships in your life. What does this word mean? What does he do for us? He sets fractured relationships right. He sets fractured things right in our life. You want to know two markers of the church throughout the New Testament? Ready? Love and unity. Two identifying marks of the church throughout the New Testament. Love for one another and love for, for their neighbors and unity. No fractions. That, that's, that's what the, the church is called to over and over and over again. Guys, I, I can't serve you as your pastor if my son despises me. I can't do it. I've got to step down. It's part of scripture. If, if my wife hates me for the amount of time that I spend at the church, I've got to retire and go figure out something else, which will really stink and we'll be poor. But it, it's, it's just, it's the truth, right? But that truth doesn't just apply to me. It also applies to, to you. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. If my life is not marked by love for God and love for people, if it's not, not marked by love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, something's wrong. And so we've got to ask God to heal our fractured relationships. Now, I want to say something here because some of you, I know how you think. I'm going to get in your head and it's going to freak you out. Okay? Some of you, the moment you hear you have to heal fractured relationships... You have done everything that you can and you feel guilty that somebody still doesn't want you. That's not what it means. To heal a fractured relationship means that you extend love and you extend forgiveness. And if they choose not to accept it, ultimately that's on them. But I continue to extend love and forgiveness. It's, it's just a constant continuance in that relationship. And whether they, they, may, they may never receive you. And that's okay. But you know what? I'm still going to continually do what God's called me to do. Now, that's hard, right, ladies, with mother-in-laws and stuff like that? It's tough. It's hard. It's hard when somebody has hurt you, right? What about a best friend? Just when you weren't looking, you're like, oh, you stabbed me in the back. I will never. No, God says you will. Why? Because one of the marks of a Christian is love and unity. You can't walk in love and hate somebody in your heart. You just can't do it. It's, it's, not, it's not the gospel. It just isn't. And so you've got to let God mend those fractured relationships, at least on your side. You have to let go. You have to let God change that hatred to love and forgiveness because you have received love and forgiveness from him. Okay?
So, so you've, you've got to ask God to fix any fractured relationships in your life. Lastly, uh, I think this, this final encouragement uh, that Jesus makes us better calls us to submit to the Lord's training and to daily get dressed for battle. Submit to the Lord's training and, and to daily get dressed for battle. Jesus didn't leave us alone. He told us exactly how to get ready, how to get dressed for battle. Um, they're not complicated things. How's your prayer life? Start there. If you're not talking to Jesus, something's wrong. You're too busy to spend time with him. You're too busy, right? As you go about your day, talk to Jesus. Talk to him when you wake up and, and, and it's okay in the shower. He knows what your nakedness looks like, okay? You can laugh, but I'm telling you, what's on the outside of you is a whole lot better than what he sees inside your heart. That's where all the ugliness is. It has nothing to do with on the outside. If he knows the ugliness of my heart, then why can't I talk to him when I'm naked in the shower? You know what I'm saying? Because he's he seen much uglier than this. He's seen in this heart, and it's ugly. There's, there, there should be no place off limit. Anytime you can get alone and talk to the Lord, don't, don't feel... I, and I say that to you and half-jokingly, but I know people, they're like, the shower is the only private place, but I can't talk to God there, I'm naked. I'm like, really? Really? Seriously? Because you came into the world naked. He took care of that, didn't he? You find any place you can that is quiet and alone. You go out to your car. Like, I got you, man. I got four kids, right? The car is sometimes the only quiet place. And that's when they're not in it, you know? Because I could have 52 movies going on and everybody could have a Kindle and I'm still, Daddy, are we there yet? I'm going on vacation in a week and a half. I'm a little freaked out. We're driving to Colorado. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Woo! We won't be walking in joy and peace and patience, but we're going to be driving in it. We're going to be driving in it. Prayer. Talk to God on a regular basis, right? Bible study, this isn't difficult stuff. You're reading the word of God. Why? Because it helps you get dressed for battle. How did Jesus fend off Satan? Anybody? With Scripture. That's how he fended off Satan, with Scripture, right? Because the enemy always wants to take the things of God, and that's what he did with Jesus, and twist them. If you are the Son of Man, do this, right? If, if you are, and, so, and Satan does those things. He always talks to me like, like, really? God really loves you? Look how dirty you are. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out, dude. Here's what the Bible says. You're right. My heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. But Jesus has given me a new heart. So you, you don't have access here. Because the word of God says this about me. It says that I am loved, that I am adored, that I have made, been, been made perfect in Jesus even though I am being made holy. So you can't pick on my lack of holiness and, and, and point to my lack of perfection. I'm not completely holy yet, but I am perfect, brother. Step back. Here's the word of God. You've got to know it, right? Because we've got to fight. And when he comes up against you, you've got to know that. You've got to have scripture. It leaves me scripture memorization to take the word of God, and, and to put it in your life and just to know a few verses that you can always stand on. Take every thought captive. Ladies, gentlemen, how's your thought life? How's your thought life? Because we're told to take every thought captive for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus, right? Live life on purpose. Jesus helps us do that. Jesus is not just better he lives to make us better. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. 
Thank you for making us better. Would you uh, allow these things to sink in in our lives, just to go deep in us? Would you please help us bring our lives before you so that you might mend, take our relationships before you, that you might set right any fractures, submit to you daily, that we might be trained and dressed for this thing called life and this battle that we face against a very real enemy that wants to destroy us. Thank you, Lord. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. So, um, super simple.